Well, good morning. We have several things to sort of talk about and think about as we're um, advancing into our fall season. And I uh, wanted to tell you one new experience I've had now at, um, as a resident of this glorious state and community. Uh, I took three of the olders in my family, my three older children, to the state fair yesterday in Palmer. It was a wild and wet experience, and uh, you know, but the the water didn't stop the rides, and it didn't stop the exuberance with our kids. I was uh, thoroughly exhausted by that experience, uh, and my my son and I had our sort of coming to Jesus experience in, in one of the rides that we rode early on in our time. Typically, you warm up before you get on this ride, but we got on the Apollo pretty pretty soon after going, and I guess that's the thing. You know, that's like the chariots that are meeting each other in the air like this. And, you know, something about, I don't know that OSHA really saw the way the safety equipment, you know, connects or whatever. But somehow, being caged in, we survived and we sort of had this experience together. There was a gleam in the eye of the, the attendant, the guy with the rodeo hat and the boots, as he locked us in, you know. But we survived and we had a good time. It was, again, another... You know, oh, this is Alaska experience, and it was just really, really enjoyable um, for us all around. Something else I'm excited about with our church, and this is uh, sort of, you know, we're, we're kind of figuring it out as we go, but we're very excited about some of the things that we're trying to do. Next week, next week, we're going to have a, a little bit of a new chair arrangement where your, your seating will be adjusted a bit. So just be careful. Be prayerful about that. Uh, You may not know where exactly to sit down, but the seats are going to be a little bit more in the round. There's going to be a center aisle now next week and a preacher's porch that extends the stage forward about eight feet with a new pulpit on it. And uh, Steve Pauls has crafted and created all of this with his crew and team and We've thought through a lot of things in terms of the aesthetics of of our room and how to bring a a greater focus on what we do here to worship God and to glorify God through song and through opening the Word of God. So be in prayer about um, those transitions and anticipate those. Steve Pauls and I are going to give sort of a dialogue announcement next week about ways that we can sort of pay as we go if we want to refurbish the room and again accentuate all that we could have here in worshiping God together. I saw a computer, three computer generated images that we're going to put on the screen next week that sort of blew my mind in terms of how we could um, transform the place with just some painting and some adjustments and then perhaps some future investments uh, down the road. In terms of some ministry that's happening uh, this coming fall, if you'll see in the announcements under women's ministry, there's a women's uh, ministry retreat coming up. I joked last week that I know the speaker, and I do. Uh, My wife, Judy, is speaking at Alaska, and uh, it's coming up. If you register on or before the 12th, the cost is $65, and uh, the retreat is on October the 9th at the Hotel Alaska, and I would just encourage you to go, not just to get to know my wife, but also to get to know each other and have warm fellowship around uh, God's Word. Also, in a couple weeks, I'm, I'm really anticipating this service in two weeks, not this coming Sunday, but the one after, the Blessed Feet Ministry, 
which is uh, just basically a ministry of our missions commission. We're going to be promoting missions together and praying about missions, and that is coming up in two weeks on Sunday evening. So we'll have sort of a service and a communication about missions and praying about that coming up week after next. One final announcement, uh, Susan Galvin. Susan Galvin has been heading up our hospitality ministry, which in the back you'll notice there are donuts or things to eat, muffins, and there's coffee. And this is a great uh, opportunity for us to fellowship between services, to get to know each other. Those of us who are here and those of us who are coming, we're trying to make this into a great fellowship time each Lord's Day. If you want to be part of that, see Susan Galvin. If you just want to bake some brownies or cookies or or muffins uh, every now and then, sign up and register to do that on the table over here. Well, now what I'd invite you to do is stand up and uh, let's greet each other in the Lord. Take a few moments and just say hello to the people around you. All right, let's uh, return to our seats now and open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. I think that this is an appropriate text to lead us into our time of communion where we will focus on the gospel and the great treasure that's found in Christ and in our salvation precious jewel of the gospel. Think about that as I read verses 19 through 24 of Matthew chapter 6. Our Lord said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For... Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This text centers around verse 24 and the phrase, you cannot serve God and money. You've got to choose. And it develops Sort of an idea that our culture experiences. Something that people were guilty of when Jesus spoke these words is something that people are guilty of today. And it is the idea of being ambivalent. Ambivalent or 
ambivalence in general. What is that? Well, it's, to define it, it's the state of having simultaneous conflicting feelings toward a person or a thing. Stated another way, ambivalence is the experience of having thoughts and emotions of both positive and negative valence towards someone or something. Another definition, the coexistence of opposing attitudes or feelings such as love and hate towards a person or an object or an idea. It's being uncertain. It's being, you know, wishy-washy. It's, it's being non-committal about things. It's, it's, it's kind of this Brett Favre type thing, you know, where, where he, he, he wants to be playing football, but, oh, I'm getting older, but I, I want to play. You know, how can you not love Brett Favre? Even if he's a Viking now, it doesn't matter. It's, it's Brett. But he's ambivalent until he committed. But this is a bigger deal than that. Jesus is pointing out ambivalence that goes much deeper than our job or whether or not we're going to make a career move or not, or whether or not we're going to have children or not, or whether or not we're going to be committed to this dating relationship or not. It goes deeper than that. He's saying choose God or the riches of this world. One or the other. Uh, To be ambivalent is kind of in vogue these days, even in the church. And this is where it gets really sad. There are a lot of people who will not bite down all the way on certain doctrines because they want to keep relationships. And so they will keep their feet firmly planted in midair on issues. You know, theology actually used to be called dogma. Could you imagine? Hey, you know, let's have a dogma discipleship time, you know? Let's be dogmatic together. Oh, you know, don't do that. That would make someone very, very narrow-minded, right? Well, the Bible is pretty clear on primary doctrinal issues, and there is dogma in the Bible. God himself, as a being, is not ambivalent about anything. He's not. He's precise, and he's sure as God Jesus is not ambivalent here with his words in this text. Christianity is not ambivalent. To be a Christian is to not be ambivalent about choices like these, God or money. To be double-minded, James 1.8 says, is to be a man who is unstable in all his ways. In the context, it talks about being like a person that's like a rag doll tossed to and fro up and down on the wind and the waves. To be a Christian is to have a single focus like Paul did. This one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward for the prize that lies ahead. We're committed to Christ, the narrow road. It's all about him. And it's not just for the pastors to be this way. It's a call for all Christians to be all in. All in. The secret to being a joyful Christian is to be all in. Philippians chapter 3, I read it before, our citizenship is in heaven. We go, look, this world is going to be topsy-turvy and ambivalent, but, but my focus on Christ in heaven is sure. Jesus is sort of forcing the issue here in the sermon. He's not the Dale Carnegie motif, how to win friends and influence people at this point. He's saying, like Joshua, choose you this day whom you will serve. Everything, you'll notice in this text, is centered around money in one form or fashion. There's no, way to, no better way to diagnose someone's spiritual health than to ask them you know, what they're spending their money on, right? Where your treasure is, your heart is also. 
you look at someone's bank statement, you see their priority list pretty quickly. And Jesus knew that. So what he's trying to do here is he's trying to loosen the believer's grip on the world with these statements, with these three choices that he poses in this text. Jesus is solidifying one's commitment to the kingdom by posing three choices. If you want sort of an outline header, there are three choices in this text. The first choice, number one, we find this in verses 19 through 21, kingdom or your wealth. Choose the kingdom or your wealth. That's the first choice. This is letting go of your possessions, giving away what you have. Look at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. What is he saying there? The words lay up in your Bible is the exact same word for treasure that Jesus uses at the end of that phrase. In other words, he's saying, do not treasure for yourselves treasures on earth. Think about it. Don't don't value for yourselves the values of this world. Don't make your, the joy of your life, don't treasure in your heart what is valuable or treasure on earth. Why don't you do that? Because everything that we can value in this world will deteriorate. We'll be in a state of atrophy. Everything. Moth and rust will destroy it or thieves will break in and steal. It's the idea that back in the culture here, people would buy expensive garments. And expensive garments that you would kind of store away in your closet represented your status. They were status symbols, a lot like today, but maybe more so back then. In that culture, that was a way for you to have an expensive look, like an expensive vehicle or what have you, an expensive house. It was your expensive garment, And Jesus is saying, listen, there are moths that go in and eat those things and leave holes in the things that you are putting your investment in. And in the precious metals that you have, they they were not sort of controlled, environmentally controlled and safe materials. They were things that would eventually rust and turn green and deteriorate. Then you have thieves that would break in and steal. The thieves, literally, uh, the word breaking in here, they would dig through your house and take these items from you. Because back then you had rock and mud for your home. And they would literally dig. That's what the word means for breaking in. They would dig in your house and steal it from you. A lot of people would bury their treasure in the ground and then the the worms would get after it. There was no way to hold your money from being stolen. A lot like the market today where people have invested great sums of money and then have had to be very honest with themselves. I need to to let certain things go, certain securities go, because the arrows in the newspaper or on the news are still pointing down more than up. And I'm watching the numbers that represent my investment, my future, kind of go away. Like the proverb says, our money takes wings and, and flies off away from us. So we shouldn't put our hope in it. To treasure wealth on earth really is to covet. It's to covet. It's to bow down to wealth like it's our idols. Uh, Ephesians 5, 5 and Colossians 3, 5 says that all coveting is idolatry. It's just bowing down to what we have. 
me say quickly, though, that there's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with accumulating wealth. We need to take care of our own families, and if we don't, we're worse, worse than an unbeliever. Job was the wealthiest man in his day, and he was the most godly man. Abraham was very wealthy, and at the same time, he was the father of faith. David, who was the king, was wealthy, and Solomon, his son, was even more wealthy, so wealthy that the queen of Sheba was impressed at a visit with him. Joseph of Arimathea gave his tomb to Jesus for him to be buried in. And Joseph of Arimathea would be assumed to be very wealthy, being a tomb owner. But the danger is living for the wealth. That's the danger. It's not not having it. It's living for it or living for what you don't have. We know 1 Timothy 6.10 very well. It says, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, right? It's the love of it. It's to live for it. And through cravings, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced their hearts through with many pangs. We've all experienced this at one level or another, where we're putting our heart and trust in a payment that can finally be made, or, or finally we have some money earmarked, and, and that makes me happy. But when your whole life steers on that, it really will take you down, won't it? And it doesn't really graduate. Idolatry doesn't graduate. It just takes on um, greater maturity and sophistication. I remember being a 12-year-old or 11-year-old and um, battling with the fact that I had had something stolen that I loved. It was a helmet. And, oh, I loved it. It was shiny and sparkly, and I used to ride this go-kart. It was a Formula One race car all around the neighborhood. I was night rider. I was. And anyway, so, so I had this helmet. And I went to the schoolyard, and I I took my helmet off to get a greater thrill as I was going around the bus ramp in my go-kart. And I left it there. And I went home and found that I had left it there and then went back, and it was gone. And it was a lesson, you know, that, that I had to give away something material that was making me very, very happy. And it... it It's the same situation. It's the same kind of mental, spiritual decision that we have to make when we have to let things go that we think we need or want to make us happy. People have all kinds of perverted versions of this. I mean, you'll hear of stories where people hoard things. And sometimes people hoard so many things that they don't realize that if they didn't hoard things and they would just appropriate their funds in the right way, that they would have a better life. There was a lady named Bertha Adams who died. She was in West Palm Beach, Florida, and she died at 71 years old in 1976, and the cause was malnutrition. People came in, the investigators and police came in to see her house in serious disarray. It was, uh, it was a veritable pig pen sty, and it was one of the worst situations that these people had ever seen. She was a lady who was living on borrowed food and clothes that she was wearing from the Salvation Army. So amid this jumble of her filthy existence, two safety deposit keys were found in the apartment. And when they opened these two safety deposit boxes in two different banks, they found that this person had 700 AT&T stock certificates and $600,000 in cash. She was a millionaire and then some. But she wasn't applying what she had. She was too busy hoarding for herself and building her nest that she wasn't able to get 
up above her situation and appropriate the funds in the right way. Materialism, it takes on all kinds of forms and it can really mess us up. There are some subtle forms of coveting that are lesser examples uh, in our own lives, right? Do you ever kind of read the circular that comes around and look through the items and say, you know, I just, I just want to bump up a little bit. I want to bump a lifestyle bump. You know, I've got this, but that would be better. Or there's this heirloom in my family and, you know, people are sort of jockeying for position for that, that thing. That I really want that. You know, or how about think it, thinking it through politically? You know, if, if this person wasn't in power, then the market would be this and, and then my arrows would go up, right? And so I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with, with this, you know? A lot of times, you know, our political positions have a lot to do with our own interests. And we have to be careful. We have to kill those kinds of idols in the heart. What's equally dangerous is to either give or abstain from giving and believing that we're more spiritual for doing one thing or the other. There are some people who save their money or who would never take their their wife and children away on a family vacation. And that can be another form of idolatry or materialism. There's some people who would say, look, I I can't go on the fishing trip because I'm going to go on the missions trip, and that's more spiritual. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. We have to be spiritually minded, and we have to, to think through gospel priorities and then make our decisions. Why do we invest in heaven? Why do we invest in a focus toward heaven? It's because our investment is secure when we do that. Look at verse 21. Verse 20 again says, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In other words, treasure or value heaven's treasure because it's secure. The moth nor rust won't destroy this. But look what it does in our hearts in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's a very interesting phrase. It's almost like a which came first, the chicken or the egg type phrase. So it's, it's saying, look, if you're giving treasure, if you're treasuring and valuing treasure in heaven, then it reveals where your heart is. But I also think that when you, when you give to the Lord's work with your time and your talent, with your treasure, with your life. You know what it does also? And I think verse 21 points this out. It softens our heart. It softens our hearts. You might say, look, I don't feel like giving more. I don't feel like doing more. I don't feel like sacrificing more. Well, you know what? I believe verse 21 is pointing out the sowing and reaping principle. That if you sow in heaven's wealth, you'll reap a heart that's softer and wants heaven's wealth all the more. Say, I don't feel like giving. Well, give and pray about it as you give and watch the Lord soften your heart. It's like serving on a missions trip. You ever not want to go, you know, you're you're kind of bummed. It's a short-term missions trip and and you're you're packing your stuff and you're on the plane and then you kind of shift gears in your mind, right? And you get into it and you begin to share Christ with people and you begin to sow seed and you find your heart is exuberated and you're enjoying it. Same thing with the Bible study. I don't want to go. I don't want to buy the book. I don't want to take the time. But but once you get into it, you enjoy it. 
serving opportunities. There's all kinds of versions of this where, where once you are treasuring heaven's treasure, the glory of God, people reaching out, sharing Christ, learning the word of God, treasuring God's word, all of those forms and variety of kingdom living, once you give over to that, your heart kind of catches up and softens. And you find that where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So in one sense, verse 21 is saying, look, if you were to look into a person's heart, you'd see where their treasure is. But in another sense, if you sow seed towards the kingdom of God, you're going to find that your heart will follow. I really believe that. It's a secure investment if you do it too. It's not like, you know, investing in cars. <laughs> cars are some of the worst investment um, things to invest in, right? You drive it off the lot and 5% of its value is gone as soon as the tread hits the off parking lot pavement. Five years later, 65% of that car's value is gone. Nothing wrong with being a car aficionado, a person that likes cars. But again, it's just a true principle. When we invest in earthly things, they are going to deteriorate. They're going to dissipate. You know, life is a vapor, isn't it? It appears for a little while and it vanishes away. I was thinking of this analogy or thing that I heard a professor say once. Life is so quick that it could be portrayed as the hearse driving to the cemetery with you in the coffin as you're passing the ambulance on the way to the hospital with the expecting mother in the ambulance. It's just, life is just born and die, born and die, born and die. And we can't take anything with us to heaven. It's only going to be our soul. And so 2 Corinthians 9, 6 is true. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, but whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. All right, so this is about loosening our grip. We loosen our grip with the first choice, kingdom or wealth. The second choice that Jesus poses is verses 22 through 23, Kingdom or your wants. Kingdom or your wants. This is letting go of things that you would wish that you had. It's not just letting go of what you have, but letting go of things that you would wish that you had. Giving up uh, on what you do not now possess. Look at verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Let's stop there. The picture here is of the eye being like a window to our souls. And it has less to do with light going out of the window as it does with light going in. In other words, if your vision is clear about the world around you, then the state of your soul will be good. But if your vision is muddied, or unclear about things, and you're covetous, then it's going to make you dark inside. That's Jesus' point here. That is the picture of a window. If you keep a window clean, it will allow the sun's beautiful colors to come into the house. But if the window is dirty, or tinted, or tainted, 
then the colors will be less effective and it'll be of less benefit. You ever drive in your car and have your windshield steam over? All of a sudden your driving is very skewed, it's very messed up. Your vision is unclear and when you wipe the windshield and smear it, it's even worse. Things are messed up, things are not functioning well, it's hard for you to stay on the path in front of you. It's the same thing with our eyesight spiritually. When our eyesight is smeared, it messes up where we're going in our hearts. Colorblind person, he can't see red and green, and so he's not enjoying Christmas colors like people who can. A person who has cataracts might be sitting next to someone, but they're only seeing you know, a, a, an image next to them. There are limitations And a blind person is ultimately so limited that the darkness is overwhelmingly great. And I believe that's what Jesus is referring to in verse 23 at the end. How great is the darkness there? Now, many people who are impaired in their vision compensate for that, relying on their other senses. But Jesus' point is well taken. If our eye spiritually is greedy then the light of Jesus is something we're not going to experience in our souls. We'll be like that raccoon who's looking at the shiny piece of tin. You ever heard of this trap that's that's laid in um, a log or, or a trap or a box where the hole is just big enough for the raccoon to put his hand in and grab the tin, but when he balls his fist around the tin, he can't take his hand out, and his greed is what ultimately makes him... A sacrifice because the hunter will come and kill the raccoon because it, the raccoon will not let go of the piece of tin. And we're the same thing. When we're, when we're willing to grab onto something so much, when we're willing to, to, to want something so much that we're willing to sin in our hearts to keep it, whether we have it yet or not, we're, we're sinning in that way, it will, it will make us dark in our hearts. That's what Jesus is saying. I've seen Owen do this with the diaper box. I don't know if you're familiar with diaper boxes these days, but they have little ovals, and he put his hand in and wanted whatever was in there so badly that he just would not let it go. But again, he's a one-year-old version of coveting, and it just graduates into more sophistication however old we are in this life. It's Proverbs 28:22 uses the same kind of idea. A man with an evil eye hastens after wealth. A person with a greedy eye is what the sage is saying. Proverbs 23:6, do not eat the food of a stingy man. Stingy man there literally is a man with an evil eye. The Greek version of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, uses the same word that Jesus is using for eye. It's the same concept. It's having an evil eye and being greedy. Deuteronomy 15.9 spoke of how in the law, in the Old Testament, you were obligated after seven years to forgive people that owed you things to forgive their debts. It's kind of a statute of limitations law in the Old Testament where you had to let those things go for the sake of the poor that was around you. In Deuteronomy 15, it says... If you don't do this, your eye becomes evil. You're ungenerous toward your brother who is in need. Luke 16 is the parable where Jesus compared Lazarus with the rich man. And the rich man who ultimately fell to greed was in hell 
And Lazarus, who was eating the breadcrumbs that would fall off the table like a dog, was in heaven. So, choices here. Kingdom or wealth, the second choice. Kingdom or wants, and the third choice. Kingdom or your will. Kingdom or your will. And these are the final, this is the final verse of this section. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You know what this is? This is letting go of what you think you deserve. Letting go of what you think you deserve. Number one, you're kind of letting go what you have. Number two, you're letting go what you think you need or what you wish you could have. And then ultimately, when you start to make this a picture of of slavery to the Lord. It's, it's whether or not you will serve the Lord's wants in your life or you're wanting to serve your own wants in your life. That's it. Letting go what you think you deserve. Jesus demands of us that he is our single master. It's so interesting to think about the question, why am I not happy in this life? Why am I struggling? And you could boil the answer down to this verse and this choice. Am I serving God with a singular devotion or not? Or am I serving my own worldly wants? That's it. And at some level, we have to kill these idols in our hearts and ask and answer that question over and over again to find joy in the Christian life. You know, the cultural context here is key. Jesus is not saying you can't serve two different employers or two different bosses. That's not what he's saying here. It doesn't work. I mean, a lot of people have two jobs and three jobs, and you can do that. He's talking about a master and slave relationship where you are this willing servant, this willing slave, and you're wholly devoted to the one who's over you. And he's just saying, look, it doesn't work. It's counterintuitive to think that you could be wholly devoted to one person and then wholly devoted to another person. Perhaps a modern-day analogy would be um, the idea of having two different wives. You've heard of people who try to pull this off, right? They have one family and one wife in one region of the country, and then they have another family and another wife in another region. I mean, I know it sounds far-fetched, but sometimes people do that. And it it tears that person ultimately apart. You can't have two wives or or a wife can't have two husbands. You've got to be totally committed to one for there to be joy in your life. You can't have two masters. You cannot serve God and money is the point. Success meant total commitment one way or the other. I was reading uh, 1 Samuel 5. Two through seven about how the Philistines had defeated the Israelites and they captured the Ark of the Covenant. Israel wanted to really whip up on the Philistines at a certain point in their history, and so they brought the Ark into town. And when the Ark came into town, there was this great cry of affirmation: "Woohoo! God's presence is, is here. We're going to win!" And then what happened? The Philistines won, and they took the Ark. And it about gave Eli a heart attack. Hophni and Phinehas, his sons that were in sin already anyway, sleeping with temple prostitutes at the front steps, um, they were killed. 
and the ark was taken. Eli fell over. But the Philistines took the ark of Dagon into their sort of sanctuary of idols in 1 Samuel chapter 5. And they worshipped their chief idol, which was named Dagon. And Dagon was an idol in their pantheon of gods, who was the chief. And he was sort of the god of wealth and the god of vegetation and the god of security. And he was portrayed as having a man's head and the body of a fish. And so they kind of brought the Ark of the Covenant, which was two cherubim, which represented them standing and worshiping the glory of God. They were bringing the God of Israel, the God of Yahweh, into this room of idols as a statement that that Yahweh, or the God of Israel, was needing to now bow down to Dagon. And so the night passes, and the next morning Dagon is found face down on the ground before the Ark of the Covenant. And then the next morning, they propped the idol back up, and the next morning they came in, and Dagon was down, but this time his head was severed and hands were severed, showing that Dagon is dead. There's only one God. You can't have divided loyalties. We, we dare not bow down to a pantheon of godlets in our hearts and expect to be happy, and expect to fly in the Christian life, and expect this to be real for us. We need single allegiance to God, our Father. I was thinking of the words from C.T. Studd, Charles Thomas Studd, a missionary. He wrote a poem that is very impactful, and I pulled it off the internet. little history on C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd was a man who is known as, for missions, a rugged Gibraltar. He ministered in China, in India, and in Africa with his life and was counted as a person who let everything go, let all of his worldly goods go for the sake of the gospel. He was staking everything on the world to come. You remember Hudson Taylor and how he went out into the inland mission into China and and wore the Chinese garb and grew his hair long and fit in with the manners and customs and language of the people. Well, he called for young students from Cambridge to come and join him in this mission work. And you know what? C.T. Studd was one of them. He was one of the Cambridge Seven that went to China to follow Hudson Taylor. He dressed like the Chinese and ministered there. And then later on, he went to the States and ministered in the United States to several different colleges, starting what was called the Student Volunteer Movement. This is in the late 1800s. And then ultimately in 1910, he went to the largest unevangelized region in Africa between the Nile and Lake Chad and went there and ministered to tribal people ultimately against doctor's orders, and died of a series of heart attacks there, even leaving his family in England, traveling a great distance down to Africa to minister there, and then ultimately died. Now, what impresses me more than his his mission's work is his heart behind his mission work. Because his father was a very wealthy man who had won his fortune in India when Charles Thomas Studd was a child. But when C.T. Studd was 25 and was 
in China as a missionary, his father died and said, listen, I'm going to, it was willed to him all of his inheritance. And before C.T. Stead even knew how much money was coming to him, he just began to give it away. He gave 5,000 pounds to D.L. Moody. So I'll just, I'll just give that there. And then he, he had 4,000 pounds and he gave that to George Mueller. Name sound familiar? Hey, who can I give my money away to? Because that, that doesn't fit my, my, my M.O. here. That's not my program here in China. I'm just giving it away. But he had 3,400 pounds left over and he found his wife on the mission field, this Irish missionary, Priscilla Livingston Stewart. And when they got married, she said, you know, what did... What was it about Jesus and the rich young ruler where Jesus was saying, give everything away and follow me? Why don't we just do that? You want to give me this money? Well, let's just give the rest away. So she convinced him to give the rest of the money away. Pretty radical. And it sounds like a fool's plunge, but I think that they were trying to stake their, their hopes on the gospel and the kingdom of God and believing God's word. Well, with that as a background, let me read a few lines from a poem that's pretty famous. It's called Only One Life. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's bow for prayer as we begin our time of focus on the Lord's table. I'm going to be looking through Philippians 3 as our meditation, but I would just call you now for a time of examination. There is great sobriety around the Lord's table and its significance, and we want to approach it humbly and with a clean heart. So examine yourself for a few minutes. Father, I pray that we would have a pure heart as we approach your table. Lord, the elements before us symbolize not just something we do monthly, but it symbolizes what we live for. We love the gospel. We love your truth, and Lord, this is representative of what we need to value and treasure more than anything else. So give us grace now to treasure what you did on our behalf. Amen. If the men would come forward now to serve us the elements, what I want to do as they're coming is read from Philippians chapter 3. Remember, I centered on a single devotion for Christ, and Paul's testimony is such where he said, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward for what lies ahead. As the men pass out the bread, I just want to read a text. And this is Paul's testimony. 
as the Pharisee of the Pharisees, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, what did he say? He said he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now watch this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For this, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This wafer of bread represents the bread that was broken on the night of Passover, and Jesus broke the bread around the table. And it was a very uh, familial environment, a very loving environment, but also a very serious environment because it represents our atonement. And Jesus' body is represented in what we eat. And as we um, chew this wafer, we remember that his body was, was given for us as the sacrificial lamb. And so as holy, devoted Christians, let's partake together. As the men now will pass the cup, I want to read a few more verses from Philippians 3. Again, it's Paul's testimony as he followed Christ with single devotion. He said that he suffered the loss of all things in order to gain Christ to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And he says these words, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead.
Jesus said to his disciples that his disciples needed to be willing to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now, what in the world did he mean by that? He didn't mean literally, obviously. What he meant is that we need to be willing to follow him with everything that we've got, heart, mind, soul, and strength. We need to be willing to stand up and and stand out before the world that we are willing to identify ourselves with Christ, even if it costs us our own lives. With that kind of spirit in our hearts, with that kind of commitment, let's drink together now. And then you can be seated. As a final benediction, what I wanted to do is have all of us stand together. I want to lead you in a hymn. I'd rather have Jesus, and I'm going to lead with the microphone. Let's sing together as one congregation and choir. Thank you. Have a good day.